Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. How are we this morning? Good, good. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29. The title of the message this morning is The Skill of Being Fearless. The Skill of Being Fearless. The verse is 25. Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You know, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was also denied. He was denied by the disciple who said, it doesn't matter if all the other ones leave you and forsake you, I never will do it. And yet, on that very same night, that disciple said, under pressure from other people, I don't know the man. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now, six weeks later, that same disciple who denied Jesus three times stood before thousands of hostile and pessimistic Jews and said, Men of Israel, this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. And I exhort you today to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins because Jesus Christ is both crucified and risen from the dead. Now, how could a man who was so fearful in, in one moment six weeks ago now stand in front of this intimidating crowd and be absolutely fearless? It's because in that moment, he trusted in the Lord with all of his might and was unconcerned for the approval and the acceptance of other men. Hey, it was just days after that that he is arrested in the temple because he had healed this crippled man and everybody was going crazy over this healing. And so the Jewish leaders, the, the elite of the elite, arrest him. And then they, then they bring him in front of the Sanhedrin and the high priest and all of these bigwigs in, in religion. And, and they said this. They said, this is what you need to do. You need to stop preaching in the name of Jesus and we will let you go. And, and this disciple says, well, no. No, that can't happen because there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And he he says, listen, there's a lot of things that I might not do, but one of them is not stop preaching the the, the name of Jesus. Now, how was he able to be so bold in front of these so important religious men? It's because in that moment, nothing was more important to him than the approval of his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he rejected, he rejected the need to be approved and accepted by men. But listen to me, church. This same apostle, years later, is enjoying fellowship with Gentile Christians. 
He's a Jew, but the gospel has become so clear to him and so so powerful to him that he now fellowships with Gentiles, something that he never would have done before. And so he's, he's enjoying meals with Gentiles. He's going into Gentile Christians' homes. He's worshiping God with Gentile Christians. Everything is wonderful. And then all of a sudden, there are some Jewish Christians who come up from Jerusalem and are going to be visiting with him. And do you know what this apostle does? He stops eating with Gentiles. He stops hanging out with them. He stops breaking bread with them. Why? Why? Because nothing was more important to him than the acceptance and the approval of other Jewish Christians. How can that happen? How can he go up and down the scale? Because he's human. That's why. And church, the first thing that I want to do for you this morning is I want to both encourage you and exhort you. I want to encourage you that God knows that you are going to fall prey to the fear of man. Peter did it. Other Christians have done it. You and I do it regularly. He knows, and God is not going to kick you out of His kingdom because you fail in the area of the fear of men here and there. But at the very same time, I want to exhort you because God has given to you and to me everything that we need not to fear men. He's given us everything that we need to stand strongly and firmly in trusting God and not seeking approval and acceptance by men and that we can stand firm. And the more we walk with God, the stronger we can be in our trust of Him and our lack of need to trust in men. So the fear of man lays a snare, the text says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. This is the big idea today. This is the big idea. Even though it looks safe, even though it feels safe, and even though the world tells you with loud megaphone voices that it is safe, I want you to know that the most dangerous thing that you can do with your life is fear men. And conversely, even though it looks risky, even though inside it feels risky and dangerous, and even though the world outside is yelling at you with a megaphone voice that it is not only dangerous, but it is stupid, I want you to know that the safest thing you can ever do with your life is trust God with all of your heart. If you fear no one but God and hate nothing but sin and want nothing more than for Jesus Christ to build His kingdom, then you will be a gospel force to be reckoned with until you draw your last breath. I asked the question this week, who does God use most in this life? Who does God use for the building of His kingdom, for the magnification of His glory most in this life? And I will tell you, He uses men and women and boys and girls who don't find their identity or their worth in the acceptance and approval of other people, but who find their approval and their worth in Jesus Christ and live for the purpose of glorifying His name. And so this is what I want to do right now is I want to call you to a life of fearlessness. I want to call you to a life of fearlessness, a life of courageous Christianity, And I want to do that simply by giving you two marks of a fearless Christian. Two marks of a fearless Christian from verse 25. If you want to be a fearless Christian, 
then the first thing that you must do is you must be aware of the snare of fearing man. You need to be aware of the snare of fearing man. The first part of the verse says, the fear of man lays a snare. Just look down at the verse. This word fear, it means to tremble, to have anxiety, to experience fear, both in your heart and in your mind. It's used three times in 1 Samuel 14, verse 15, when Jonathan, the son of Saul, courageously goes up against these Philistines who are encamped. And these Philistines get scared. Listen to what the text says. It said there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Panic, trembling, panic. That's the same word that is used right here in verse 25. There is a fear, an anxiety, a trembling that happens. And where is this fear rooted? It is rooted in people. The fear of man is this trembling, this anxiety because of people. And what does it do, the text says? It says it lays a snare. It is, it sets a trap. That's what it does. The fear of man sets a trap. Picture with me for, for a moment a hunter who, who takes this, this, this trap. It's one of those traps that's kind of circular in nature and has these big, huge teeth all around it. And if something were to stick its foot in it, it then collapses like that and the teeth go right into the, the animal or whatever it may be. Well, this hunter has this trap that's folded out and it's, it's camouflaged and its teeth are really long, five, six inches long. And, 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 and he sets it down on the ground and he attaches a rope to it and to, climbs up in the tree and works out a pulley system so that when the animal that he's trying to trap is caught in it, it pull, pulls the animal up and catches it. Picture with me for a moment that he rigs everything up and then he's going to leave this area and head back to the house and sure he'll come back and check whether or not something's happened in the next day, two, or three But as he's walking away, he remembers that he left his cell phone at the the tree right beside it. He was fixing something up. And so he walks back hastily because he's in a hurry and inadvertently he steps in his own trap. And it catches his leg. And it jerks him up. And his head is now looking at the, the ground. And his feet are up in the air. And his leg is bleeding because the teeth are are penetrating inside of his leg. And he's in the middle of the woods. And he is hopeless and helpless. Unless a miracle happens, he's probably going to die out there. That's the picture that Solomon wants you to see when he says that the fear of man sets a snare. Because it's a snare for himself. He did it to himself. And so... If you want to know what the fear of man is, you can write this down if you're you're into defining words. The fear of man is the worship of being accepted and approved by people. It is the worship of being accepted and approved by people. And I call it worship. I call it worship because, because your spiritual life is at stake if you are interested in only pleasing people. It is the attempt 
to navigate your life in such a way that people will accept you and approve of you. We've called wisdom the skill to navigate all of life toward the glory of God. But if you fear man, you navigate your life not for the glory of God, but rather to appease and please other people so that you can be accepted and approved by them. That is the fear of man. And so what is the fear of man marked by? It is marked by two things. It is marked by two clear things. It is marked by a continual desire for man's acceptance. A continual desire for man's acceptance and then a controlling fear of man's rejection. A controlling fear of man's rejection. And those two things work together with one another. And one of the ways for us to understand the gravity, the weight of the fear of man is to understand its opposite. The opposite of fearing man is fearing who? God. Fearing God. And we know that in Proverbs, in chapter 1, it says that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And so we must ask ourselves the question, what is the fear of the Lord? And, and, and it can best be defined as this, an unwavering commitment to the sovereign majesty of God that is rooted in an awesome reverence for who He is. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It is an unwavering commitment to the sovereign majesty of Almighty God rooted rooted in a reverential awe for who He is. He is infinitely big. He is infinitely strong. He is infinitely beautiful. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely gracious. And you look at this beautiful, glorious, excellent God, and you bow before Him because you know that nothing is bigger, nothing is better, nothing is more beautiful than He is, and so you bow and you worship and you're in awe. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And so the person who fears the Lord is is wrapped up in awe of, of Him. And so this is what happens, church. The person who fears man, the person who wants the acceptance and the approval of man says something like this, I know that God exists. I realize that there is a creator and I realize he's done some good things, but that doesn't really matter to me that much. What matters to me is that I can get the people around me to not reject me and accept me to not revile me, but to approve of me. Not to push me down, but to exalt me. That's what's most important to me. That's what the fear of man is. And so, if you're going to be fearless in your Christianity, you must be aware of this snare. Now, I think we need to maybe ask ourselves the question, how does the fear of man get played out in the life of the church? How does it get played out in the life of the church? Well, I, I first thought of the four pillars that, that we have as a church. Worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission. How does the fear of man get played out in worship? Well, in one way, you could say, you know what? God has been teaching me a lot about Himself. And the more He teaches me about Himself, the more it is producing in me a desire for unhindered expressive worship. As a matter of fact, 
I actually feel like raising my hands in worship on Sunday mornings. But honestly, I think people will look at me like I'm kind of radical. People will, will judge me. My friends or my family members might think something of me or they might say something about me, and I don't want them to feel that way about me, so I think I'll keep my hands in my pockets. Or, maybe even a little bit more nuanced, the Lord is showing me how glorious He is, and how wonderful He is, and how worthy He is, and I want to start giving to His church more, and spending less on frivolous things. But frankly, I'm a little afraid of what my family's going to say about that, so I think I'll just remain status quo. Fellowship. I've got a friend, and my friend is headed down the path of destruction. He's making bad decisions. He's, he's organizing his life in a sinful way. He's watching sinful things. He's engaging in sinful practices. But I don't want to say anything to him because I'm afraid that he'll reject me. I'm afraid that he will push me away and distance me from himself. And I don't want that because I want to be his friend. I don't have that many friends in the first place. What is that? That's the fear of man. That's the fear of man. Discipleship. You have a man who who maybe leads his family or, or wants to lead his family, never had family devotions before, and, and comes to church and hears about family worship and family devotions and, and says, you know what, I want to do that, but I'm afraid my kids will reject me. I'm afraid my wife will think I'm crazy. I, I, don't, I just don't think I'm going to do that. I don't think I'm going to press for that right now. What is that? That's the fear of man. And then what about this one, mission? What about you and your spouse are feeling called to the mission field. You, you have a desire to go and preach the gospel in another country, maybe even on another continent. And you feel this tugging in your heart to do something great for the glory of God. And yet you think to yourself, our in-laws would never have it. They would never have it. They would never allow for that. What is that? It's the fear of man. It's what that is. What about if you want to share the gospel with a coworker? You realize that maybe even the time is going to be drawn to a close or he or she is going to be leaving for another job or you're going to do the same and the days are approaching and you've been wanting to share the gospel with that person but you think to yourself, I just don't want things to be uncomfortable between us. I don't want it to be odd or weird. And so you stall and you stall until, you stall until one day you go to work and they're not there anymore. What is that? That's the fear of man. And... Solomon says that the fear of man sets a snare. It's a trap. And you and I must be very aware that we can fall into it at any moment. What I want to tell you about the fear of man is the fear of man is like a noose. It's like a noose because slowly and surely it actually just squeezes the life out of you. It squeezes the life out of you until before long you no longer are living. You're no longer alive. You're no longer passionate. You're no longer zealous for God, but rather you're like a puppet. You're literally like a puppet. 
And the people around you are the ones that are pulling the strings of your life. And so if they say, you know, raise your right hand, then you raise your right hand. If they say raise your left hand, you raise your left hand. But you are allowing now not the glory of God to dictate what you do every day, but the the things that people want you to do and the things that people want you to say and they want you to buy and they want you to live a certain way. And that's how you live. God help us from living that way. The fear of man kills joy. What is joy? Joy is the inner delight. It is the constant inner delight of knowing God and enjoying God day by day no matter what your circumstances are. That's what joy is. And what does the fear of man do? It strips you. It steals from you that joy. It just takes all of the joy out of you and it creates an anxiety that says, I've got to perform for these people. I've got to please these people. And and in that way, I'll find true significance. And so, let's ask this question right now. Who can fall victim to the fear of man? <laughs> yes, we all can. We absolutely all can. Listen, preachers can fall victim to the fear of man. Elders can fall victim to the fear of man. Parents can fall victim. Kids can fall victim. It doesn't matter. Anybody can fall victim to the fear of man. No one is immune. So what I want to do right now is I want to ask you some questions. And I want you to ask them of yourself And I want you to see what those answers are. So here we go. Here's the time for self-examination. First question I want you to ask yourself. Do I ever ask myself, um, I wonder what so-and-so will think if I do this? If I do this, what will other people think of me? I'm afraid to try this because if I fail, it might look bad to other people. Ask this question. Am I easily embarrassed? Do I ever lie just to make myself look better in other people's eyes? Do I try my very best to be better than the people around me? Like, am I trying my best to be wealthier than people around me? Am I trying my best to be skinnier than the people around me? Am I trying my best to be stronger than the people around me? Am I trying my best to be more beautiful, more better better looking than the people around me? Am I trying my best to be nicer than the people around me, or more successful than the people around me. Church, I want to tell you about the drive to succeed. If at the root, at the core of your desire to succeed is not the glory of God, it is not the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is something else, I can tell you that at the root of that is the fear of man. And you may say to yourself, no, I I know a lot of successful people who are highly driven and they don't fear anything. No, it's just the opposite side of fear. 
You see, because what you're doing is, is you're looking for your worth and your identity in other people's, not just their acceptance, but their envy of you. Their, their, their jealousy of you. Because the higher you climb on the ladder of success, the more other people are looking up at you and the more you feel significant, the more you feel worthy, the more you feel exalted. It's the same thing. It is the fear of man. Now, I think we should ask the question, where did the fear of man begin? Where did it begin? If you can recall in the garden, Adam and Eve took the fruit and they ate of it. And then what did they do? What did they do? Well, they did. They looked at each other and they saw that they were what? Naked. And what were they? They were ashamed. They were ashamed. Now the irony of that is that they had lived for likely years prior to that knowing one another and seeing one another naked every day. But once they sinned and saw one another, they were ashamed. They feared. And why did they fear? Because not only were they seen on the outside, but there was a sense in which now they are seen on the inside. And they feared being seen because of who they really were. And so they ran and they hid and they hid themselves from one another and they hid themselves from God. That's where the fear of man first started. And at the moment of their sin, shame became a cornerstone of human existence. And so why do we fear men? Because men can expose us for who we really are. Men can humiliate us. Why do we fear man? Because men can reject us. They can ridicule us. They can despise us. They can attack us. They can oppress us. They can threaten us. Men can expose us for what we really are. And that is sinners. That is needy people who don't have our act fully and completely together. I will tell you, apart from the gospel, I will be afraid of being exposed for who I really am. I will fear exposure. And because of that, I will try my very best to find acceptance and approval from men without my weaknesses being exposed. I mean, think about it, y'all. Let's just be honest. Let's be honest. We live so much of our lives by trying to to present ourselves as strong and as great and wonderful as possible, and we do our very best to hide our weaknesses as much as we can. That's what we do. Because we are scared, we are fearful that our weaknesses are going to be exposed. But this is the beautiful thing. When I find my identity and my worth in Jesus Christ, when my value is found at the cross, and not in and of myself, I no longer have to fear man. I no longer have to be to, to risk exposure. Listen, I am exposed at the cross. My sinfulness is exposed at the cross. My shame is exposed at the cross. My lack of holiness is exposed at the cross. My dependence is exposed at the cross. 
Listen, mine and yours both are. As, as soon as you and I begin to look up at the cross and say, that's what I am, that's what I'm worth, that's what I deserve, and the sooner we see that Christ has paid the penalty, that He has endured the shame, that He has endured the exposure on our behalf, and we say, listen, I don't have to be ashamed anymore. I don't have to feel exposed anymore because I have what Christ has. He has exchanged my lack of worth for His worth. And now I can be seen, not not according to who I am, but according to who He is. The, The danger of the fear of man is that it will lead you away from the increasing joy and happiness in God. And it will take you to an increasing anxiety of needing the acceptance and approval of people. I want to tell you why uh, the, the fear of man is dangerous. It's because you'll never be able to please everybody. You'll always disappoint some people. You'll never be good enough for some people. You'll always be a step behind or a notch below people who are expecting you to go a little higher or a little higher or a little higher tell you if you live for the acceptance and approval of other people then you will find yourself in severe trouble in the day in which you face the lord of glory and give an account for your life because i will tell you when you take your last breath in this life and you are ushered into the presence of almighty god your brother-in-law and your mother And your 550 Facebook friends are not going to be waiting to see what what the count of your life was. There will be only one. And His name is Jesus Christ. And, And His approval and His acceptance is the only one that will matter at that point. And so when we begin to live our lives as if the acceptance of our friends and neighbors and our family members matters the most, we're setting ourselves up for a significant failure on that day. So I, I would like you to do this right now. I would like for you to ask just this question. Is there any area in my life that I am fearing man? Is there any area in my life that I am fearing man, that I am pursuing the acceptance and approval of other people? This is what I want you to do. I want you to see that right now for what it is. I want you to see that you are replacing worship for the awesome majesty of a glorious God, and you're essentially pulling Him off the throne, and you're putting these other people there. And you're saying, if I can only find their acceptance, if I can only find their approval, if I can only just not be rejected by them and ridiculed by them, if I can only just find a place in their life and in their mind such that I am like them or I'm approved by them, then I'm good. Listen, that is not simply an anxiety problem. That is not a self-esteem problem. That is not a peer pressure problem. That is a worship problem is what that is. And so you need to see that this morning for what it is and you need to confess it before the Lord of glory. 
You need to say, God, I am guilty of fearing men. And so when you see it and you confess it, you need to say, Lord, would you please forgive me? And would you help me to worship you and you alone? And so the danger of the fear of man is that it absolutely ensnares you to a life of false worship, a life of idolatry, because you're no longer worshiping God, you're worshiping the approval and acceptance of other people. Okay, so the second mark of a fearless Christian life is that you have to have an ever-increasing trust in the Lord. An ever-increasing trust in the Lord. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, we, we actually did a whole sermon on trust at the very beginning of this series. And what we said about trust is that it is to fully rely on the integrity and strength and reliability of something. You may or may not remember that. And so what we said is that trusting in the Lord is to fully rely in the integrity and strength and reliability of the God of glory. We said that the Hebrew word there for trust, which is the same word here in verse 25, means to literally throw yourself down onto the ground, face down, arms spread, feet spread, expressing to God your complete inadequacy and His full capability to meet your need. That's what trust is. I'll quote the one theologian who said, Trust is to do a belly flop on God with all your sin and all your failure and all your fears. And you stake everything on the gospel promises of God. So much so that if God fails, you're done. But if God comes through, then you will succeed and you'll be saved forever. Now, if you look down at the verse, it says, whoever trusts in the Lord is what? Safe. Safe. That word, Chris, literally means inaccessibly high. That's what it means literally. Inaccessibly high. And so if you'll picture with me like an ancient city that is perched on top of this mountain, and on one side of the mountain is a steep cliff that is just completely and utterly unclimbable. And on the other side of the mountain is, is, is woods, a forest, and, and the, the, the brush is really thick, and there are bears and lions and animals. And, and if there would be any who would want to encroach up this mountain, up to the city, in order to, to get to where you are, they would have to go through that. But because your city is unapproachably high and inaccessibly high, then you are absolutely safe from any foreign invasions. And that's the picture that God is trying to paint when He says, if you trust in Me, you will be safe. You will be inaccessibly high and you will not be penetrable to the, to the approaches of the enemy. Now, I think right now would be a good time to ask the question, how can you really say that with a straight face given the fact that Joseph trusted in the Lord and he was thrown into slavery and into bondage? How can you say that with a straight face when David loved God with all of his heart 
and he did something glorious for God. And then all of a sudden, for the next number of years, Saul, the king of Israel, pursues him with a dogged pursuit to try to kill him. How can you say that with a straight face when Job, who trusted in the Lord, lost almost his entire family and is plagued with a sickness for so long that everything in his life was in shambles? How can you say that with a straight face when there have been scores of Christians who have trusted in the Lord and they have lost their families and lost their homes and lost their livelihoods and yes, even lost their lives? How can you say that you're safe when you trust in the Lord? And I think that the answer to that question is, is because you and I have a skewed view of what it means to be safe. And we, 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 think, we think it's safe that we've got a roof over our head. We've got water that flows from sinks and spouts and we've got cars to drive. We've got insurance that we can pay for. It's safe that we've got all of these things in, in place. And the Lord is saying, that's not safe at all if that's what you're counting in. Because on that final day, when your life is done here, your insurance and the sink that flows forth, clean water, and the roof that you have under your head will not matter one single bit if you are not finding yourself in the holy presence of King Jesus. Listen, our life is but a mist. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. Safety is found in the will of God. Safety is found underneath the trusting of the character of God. So what does it really mean to trust in the Lord? What what does that really mean? Well, let's, let's have a little interactive time right now because I believe it starts by believing that God is who the Bible says that He is. So who does the Bible say that God is? Let's have a little interaction here. He's the Creator. He, he's the one who created all things. What else is He? He's a judge. He is a righteous judge who executes judgment in righteousness. What else is he? He's unchangeable. He's immutable. He never changes. He's sovereign. He's a father. He's a provider. He's he's omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. He's Lord. He, he, He is. He's holy. He is supreme. He's he's sovereign. He's he's set apart. He's separate from us. He is good. He is. He's strong. He does. He sustains life and breath and all things. He is sufficient for anything that we endure, no matter what circumstance or struggle or emptiness that we experience. He's everlasting. There is no beginning with God and there is no end with Him. He is a jealous God, jealous for His holiness, jealous for His people. He is merciful. He does not give us what we do deserve, wrath. And rather, He gives us what we don't deserve, grace. 
This is a picture of who our God is. And we've got to know that about Him. We've got to know that He's creator, sustainer, judge, righteous, holy, supreme, sovereign, omnipotent, strong, wonderful, good, merciful, and gracious. Because when we know that about our God, it will cause us to trust in Him. It will cause us to do a belly flop on Him and say, I don't care what other people think. I don't care whether people approve of me. I'm going to put all of my eggs in the basket of God. God's great and glorious character. Do y'all see that? So you believe He is who the Bible says He is. Now let's ask this question. You believe what the Bible says that He has done. What has God done? He, He has redeemed His people from their what? Sins. What else has He done? He has. He so loved us that He gave up His only Son that whoever believes in Him will what? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. So He has redeemed His people through the giving of His Son. What else has He done? He did. He has given us the Bible. He he is not silent. He has not closed his mouth and said, I'm just going to let them fend for themselves. No, he has opened his mouth and he has written a love letter to his people from Genesis to Revelation. 66 different books in narrative and poetry and, and, um, and epistles and, and apocalyptic literature. And he says, this is my letter to you so that you can not only know who I am, but know what I've done. And so he has redeemed us through the sending of his son and through the canonization of his book. And then now let's ask this question, what is God going to do? Because if you and I are ever going to trust God, we've got to ask the question, not only who is he, not only what has he done, but also what is God going to do in the future? He's going to return. He's going to return, and is he just going to stand around and just observe things? What is he going to do when he returns? He's going to judge in righteousness. He's going to call those who belong to him to himself. He's going to judge those who have rejected him. He is going to set up his kingdom, and he's going to rule and reign forever and ever. And those who trusted him in him in this life will be like him in the next. Those who rebelled against him and feared the approval and the acceptance of men more than him will be rejected by him on that final day, and they will experience punishment forever. True or untrue? True. So if it's true and we've got to know what He's going to do, then surely that's got to at least inform how we're going to live our life on Monday. And so we have to believe He is who the Bible says He is, believe He has done what the Bible says He's done, He's going to do what the Bible says He's going to do, and then we just trust Him day by day by day. Now, in 2003... I was about five years into my ministry with FCA. I was almost 28 years old. And honestly, on a weekly basis, I was, I was getting more gospel opportunities in one week than most people get in an entire year. I mean, I was, I was going from Randolph County High School to Alexandria High School to Jacksonville State University, and that would be, you know, 50 kids at a, at, at, in a school lunchroom in Randolph County to 350 packed in at Alexandria to 100 kids at JSU. And I'm trying to preach the gospel and I'm trying to counsel coaches. And, and, and yet I had never 
been to Bible college. I had never been to seminary. I had never up to this point been in a serious Bible study. And here I am trying to lead people. And I said to myself, if I'm going to to stand for God and preach for God on this kind of scale, then I need to be trained. I need to know what I'm doing so that I can help people. And in the providence of God, uh, we, we felt led to go out to California to the Master's Seminary. Jamie was teaching. She was, up at, she was uh, at JSU. I was leading this ministry with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and we sold our cars and rented out our house, and we got rid of a bunch of stuff, and we packed all of our things in a 15-foot m- moving truck, and we headed west for California. And when we got there, we didn't know how we were going to be provided for exactly, and we didn't know a lot of things. And I want to tell you that as a, almost a 28-year-old guy, I stepped into kind of the freshman orientation at the Master's Seminary. And I looked around the room of about 100 people, 100 men, and no offense, Phil, but I saw a bunch of glasses-wearing, <laughs> 22-year-old Bible college graduates, laptop-toting, 30-inch waisted guys who were obviously very smart. And, and yes. <laughs> and, and they wanted to sit by me because they wanted to hear me talk. Because I was from Alabama. And my, my heart is beating fast. And here I am with my, you know, three-ring binder, which might as well have been a trapper keeper, for those of you who remember the trapper keeper. All right? And, and here I am... And I'm kind of like older than they are. I'm a jock. I'm from Childersburg, Alabama. And people just want to hear me open my mouth. And the church that we're in at the seminary is bigger than the town that I grew up in. And I will tell you, I was not just nervous. I was scared to death. I was. I'm just going to be honest. I was very scared. And then I went to the first class, Hebrew grammar. And all of these guys are around. And the professor begins to teach Hebrew. And it, it just... It just blew my mind. And then he had one of his former students come in and open up the Hebrew Bible and begins to read the Hebrew Bible. And he says, you know, I do my devotions in Hebrew. And I want, and, and, and I'm just like, you know, I'm just like, I'm so intimidated. And I thought to myself, I've sold everything. I've left everything. I'm now sitting in this classroom full of smart people. And I do not have any idea what I'm going to do. And I will tell you, for about three weeks, and Jamie can attest to this, I was in a deep darkness. I, I, I Honestly, I was scared. Man, it makes me emotional just thinking about it right now. I was so scared. And, um, and God just said, trust me. Just trust me. And, and I trusted him through the darkness, through the intimidation, through all the self-doubt, through the difficult tests and through the quizzes and through the sleepless nights. And I came out on the other end a man who was trained to be able to teach and preach and lead and expose people to the sufficiency of Almighty God. And I just want to tell you, church, that some of you in this building need to step out. You need to step out of your comfort zone. You need to step out of this fear of the approval and the acceptance of other people 
and you need to trust God with your life. You need to trust Him with something and say, God, if you come through, I'm going to succeed. If you don't come through, I'm going to fail. But all of my eggs are in your basket and not in my own. Church, this is not a time in this culture, in this age, to play it safe. It is not a time for us to shrink back. It is not a time for us to go inside of our houses and batten down the hatches and just simply say, come Lord Jesus. It is a time for us to trust the Almighty God who has given His life for us so that we might live, so that until we draw our last breath, we will trust Him all the way to the end. If you'll just look back down on the text, and the one who fears the Lord sets a snare, but whoever, I'm sorry, fears man sets a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. He is safe. Listen, Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm not the great example of trusting the Lord. There, I mean, I can give you a thousand examples of how I've not trusted the Lord. Jesus Christ is the example of trusting the Lord. Because when He's in the garden, and He knows what difficulty He's about to face, He knows the wrath that he's about to face from his loving father. He knows the, the isolation and the forsakenness and the abandonment that he's going to feel. He's down on his knees and he says to his father, not my will, but your will be done. And he endures the cross and he endures the wrath of men and the righteous anger of God. Why? Because he fully trusts in the love of his father and he endures that because he knows that it's safe. You say, how can it be safe for Jesus to endure the cross? It's safe because He knows the character of God. He knows the promises of God. He knows the future that God has for Him. That one day, He's going to be resurrected and He's going to be ascended and all authority in heaven and on earth is going to be given to Him. Amen. Safety is in the arms of a loving Father. Yeah. And so I would ask you to right now, if you would pause, uh, put your things up, bow your head. I just want you to have a moment of meditation and prayer. Would you be willing, would you be courageous enough right now to pray this prayer. Lord, show me how I fear man more than I trust You. And once You show me, would You help me to see that You're better? Lord, would You show me how I fear man more than I trust You and then once you show me that, would you help me to see that you're better? Would you be courageous enough to pray that prayer right now? Church, there's only one life, and it will soon be passed. And only that which is done for Jesus Christ will last.
Everything else will burn. Everything else will perish. Everything else will go away just like the chaff. Who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Where are you finding your approval? Where are you finding your pleasure? Where are you finding your acceptance? Father, would you produce in Redeemer Church an army of Christians who courageously live for the glory of God, who courageously step out and take risks for the glory of Your great name. Father, would You produce an army, a small army of people who abandon the enslavement to other people's opinions and cling to Your safe and strong arms. Would You do this, Lord, not only for Your glory, but for our joy that we may know the infinite pleasure of trusting a God who is utterly trustworthy.